1: Welcome back to the Dear Prudence show once again. And as always, I am your host, Mallory Ortberg, also known as Dear Prudence. I want to talk about the worst thing that can possibly happen to you, um, which is that someone could get mad at you while you were driving. Um, if you are anything like me, and you are, you are all exactly like me. That's why you listen to this show. That's why we connect. That's why this works. Um, the worst thing that you can think of is that somebody in public uh, would not like you or would think badly of you, even for a moment, especially if you are driving and you can't stop and take them in your arms. And explain to them that you are a beautiful flower that requires nurturing and, and hugs. Um, so I live in fear of, of. I mean, first of all, I mean, I live in fear. Full stop. Uh, I, I, I live in fear of doing anything that would upset a pedestrian, much less harming a pedestrian. I try very uh, hard to drive as safely as possible. And every once in a while, I will worry because I will drive past a crosswalk. And then after I have gone through the crosswalk, someone will walk up and cross the street. And I worry they think that I did something wrong by driving through, even though they weren't there. So I will look in my rearview mirror to see if they are looking at me. They're not. Um, no one is thinking about me that much, uh, but I, I, I still, I live in fear of that every day. And I realized this afternoon I was doing it again. Um, and I realized that, that what I'm worried about is a story that I heard from a friend of mine that terrifies me every time I get in the car, which is that he was uh, merging onto the freeway uh, and without realizing it, cut somebody off. Um, and then that driver, uh, you know, veered out of the lane quite quickly, pulled up alongside of him, rolled down his window and gave him a thumbs down. Which is so much more painful than flipping somebody off. Like just the idea that a stranger would look at you and say, you know what? thumbs down to you today. Uh, It just fills me with terror and anxiety. I don't ever want that to happen to me. I I, I frankly would appreciate it if every time I left the house, people just handed me business cards that said you're doing okay. Uh, I don't think that's too much to ask of the world. I don't think that's an inappropriate uh, or or excessive need. Um, And I'd really appreciate it if you would all just start giving me thumbs up in public. Um, So that's my request uh, to all of you. Um, I'd like you to start uh, executing that request immediately. Thank you for your time. Okay, and with that, uh, I'd love to welcome Jasmine Sanders to the studio. She is a writer. She is based in Chicago. Uh, she probably never gets a thumbs down from strangers when she's out in public. Jasmine, welcome to the show. Thank you. Do you, uh, do you two live in fear of the disapproval of strangers, or do you have a more fully articulated sense of self?
0: Um, I'm usually the stranger that gives people the thumbs down. So. Oh, you're wonderful. <laughs> Congratulations. That must feel really good. It does. I'm the judgmental person that, like, other people are afraid of. So, no. It's <laughs> Not. it's wonderful. I, I
1: That makes me really happy for you. And I just thank want to you. wish you a lot of joy in that. Thank you. Um, <laughs> thank you. I, I actually am so glad that you mentioned that because I, uh, I was back on Twitter last night just scrolling through your timeline, as I periodically do, um, oh. because it f- fills me with joy. And you were on this little bit of a tear about the idea of shame. And I was so interested in it because I'm so interested in the way that we talk about shame Um, and sometimes the way in which we can be quick to say shame is the worst thing that can happen and we should never feel it. Um, I I don't know if you remember that kind of thread that you were on, but you sort of talked about how it feels like there's a lot of ways in which it seems like feminism, particularly like mainstream white feminism, seems really eager to just get rid of or eradicate the idea of shame and that that you have a lot of feelings about that. And since it's my show, I kind
0: of wanted to make you talk about it. If you don't mind, for sure. So, that tweet in particular was in response to someone who um, had asked just one of those like lifestyle threads, how do you feel about abortion? And I said, you know, pro choice till I die, but I feel really complex about having or about getting an abortion myself. And I kind of disagree with. A lot of the popular feminist rhetoric that's kind of like, oh, an abortion is like, you know, it's like a root canal, like have one with your coffee and shout your abortion. And there's kind of this push to, I mean, I get that they're normalizing it, but to also minimize the experience, which I understand. And I just totally don't feel that way. Like I was saying that you can feel however you want about your abortion like maybe i know people who are ashamed of it and i feel like that's fine as well and it feels like so much of feminism especially like white feminism is mitigating the shame of white women and i was just like you don't have to be ashamed of your abortions white women there's so many other things you could be ashamed of like your right
1: (laughs) (laughs) that uh that's the pull quote for the episode right there by the way we're we're good um we're good on the marketing copy I think there's sort of two ways in which I find that really, really interesting, one of which is whenever there's a sort of big narrative uh, that like a group or an organization tries to push in order to counteract some sort of legislation or social stigma, a lot of nuance gets lost, right? Like there's this sort of idea that for the greater good, the only message we need to send about abortion is don't feel ashamed. Um, And I, I understand why some people consider that to be politically necessary, but anything that requires a sort of uniformity of experience makes me really nervous. Um, And and we see that in a lot of other issues around feminism, too, right? Like anything that's like all women do this kind of automatically pushes to the side the experience of like women who are not cis or women who are not white or women who are not straight um, in a way that I think what you lose... um, is, is is often as as serious as what you gain. And we should sort of ask ourselves, like, what's the trade-off necessary in order for us to push this net message And
0: Absolutely. Um, it's something I've written about before um, in an essay I wrote for Lenny Letter talking about um, a miscarriage I'd had and my really complex feelings about it. And again, it's just something that I feel like it's not necessarily something we don't talk about, but there's this sort of singularity of the narrative that, you know, there's only one way, like women who get, women who have a miscarriage are always presumed to be like heartbroken and devastated Mm -hmm. about it. And it's a loss in a certain way that I didn't feel. And then on the opposite end, an abortion, I feel like we're pushing this narrative that you have to be really cavalier about it and, you know, shout your abortion when I don't feel like that's everyone's truth. And I feel like it should be fine for it not Mm -hmm. to be.
1: And the, the sort of bigger question behind that, right, is like, what's the purpose of shame? Can shame ever be useful? Can shame ever be anything other than supremely damaging? Is yes. shame something that we should seek to eradicate in all aspects of our life? Or are there ways in which shame um, is necessary? And and I, I mean, I definitely come down on the side of there are types of shame, um, like... That I think are deeply damaging and have more to do with uh, control and forcing other people to conform to something than anything else. And that sort of shame is absolutely not useful, not helpful, something that we should um, push back against. And that there are other types of shame uh, that I think are okay. Like, it is okay to feel shame about something sometimes and to say, yeah. I don't feel good about this. I'm not happy about it. I'm not proud about it. And that's okay. This feeling won't kill me. Um, and I can experience it and, and figure out how I want to process it. Yes, Absolutely. Well, with that in mind, I'd love to jump into some of these questions, uh, each one of which is just like a beautiful diamond of a doozy. (laughs) And, uh, yeah, and just see what we can pull out. Okay. Fabulous. So the first letter is just called To Adopt or Not to Adopt. Dear Prudence, For the last nine months, my husband and I have been foster parents to a terrific five-year-old. Unfortunately, reunification with the family is looking unlikely, and adoption may be on the table. Should this happen, my husband would likely support the idea of adopting, but I'm panicking over the thought. I'm exhausted and never imagined starting over again with a kindergartner. My biological children are now almost grown. This dilemma is causing me enormous amounts of stress and anxiety. My relationship has suffered, and I honestly don't feel maternal in the way that I hoped that I would. I'm worried I will have traumatized everyone in getting involved in this—my family, myself, this little girl. I know intellectually that I did a good thing by agreeing to foster, but now I feel terrible at the thought of being yet another loss to this child. How do I reconcile this guilt? I have no idea, if the time comes, how we'll be able to explain why she can't stay with us. Even my extended family is expecting us to adopt. I'm worried that if I try to make this work, I'll become even more depressed. Woof. Um, Yeah. I I think there's so much to address here. I think the the letter writer is definitely several steps ahead of herself, mm-hmm. um, which is actually, I think, a good thing because it means that you can sort of pause and realize, like, you are anticipating several different outcomes that you have not yet arrived at. Um, but I think the thing that I really want to look at first is that sentence, I know intellectually I did a good thing by agreeing to foster. Yeah. Um, I kind of want to challenge that. I feel like there's a lot of language around fostering and adoption that has to do with this sort of like self-rewarding process for doing a good deed. Right. And I just don't think that that's a healthy way to think about children. I don't um either. like when someone has biological children, no one says like, wow, you've done a really selfless thing. I mean, people will acknowledge ways in which parenting requires selflessness and self-sacrifice, but there's not that sort of language of, wow, you've really done a good deed and the implication that they should be grateful and whatever you choose to offer this person is sort of above and beyond. Um, And I I just don't think that's how you should think about fostering or adopting. I think... um, You should not think of it as some good deed that you did. Uh, I think you should think of it in terms of this child has a need that you are attempting to fulfill. Um, This child has is owed more than what she has already received from her family of origin, from the system, from the people around her. Um, and, and that's really important. So she's not like a favor you did to the world. She's not an act of altruism that you've committed. And that's not to say that like you're giving yourself a parade. I just I just want you to think about that in another way. Not like I did a good deed and I don't want to do more. So I should just be able to let myself off the hook. I don't think that's how you should think about this child.
0: I agree. I feel like... That stuck out to me, too, reading it, the idea. And I feel like a lot of her agonizing over the decision is because she wants to do the thing that makes her a good person. You know what I mean? As opposed to the thing that may be best for the child in the end, as well as for herself.
1: Right. And yeah, that'll be helpful to you as you make your decision. Like, if you're worried about, I'll either be a good person, adopt this child, and be sad. Or I'll be a bad person but happy. I think that is setting yourself up for for failure. And I think you should, again, like you said, continue to think of this as what's right for this girl. Um, I don't know uh, exactly what the system is like in this particular letter writer state. But, like, often people can become foster parents without necessarily setting up a foster to adopt scenario. Like, mm-hmm. I, it's my understanding that it's not unusual to foster a child for a short period of time. And then if reunification proves impossible, like, you are not the next uh then the next logical choice for adoption like that child may move on right like that's yes. my understanding of it yes yeah so there's there's lots of different ways this situation could um play out and uh, unless you had signed up for like foster with the intention of adopting um it's it's not unusual to foster a child for a while um, and not permanently and not become their adoptive parent. So, no, like, if nothing not. else, I think you should be able to contact, um, you you know, whoever you've been in touch with in the foster care system because they should be preparing you for this, right? Like, this should be not a shock and they should have some sort of, like, language and processes in place for anticipating um uh, no longer providing her with primary care. Um, so yeah, uh, reach out to them. Ask them what what should we do if it comes to a point where she cannot be returned to her family and and has to look for a more permanent place. How do we handle that?
0: Yeah, I don't think it's like a technically difficult thing to do. It's just mostly her own emotions, I guess, surrounding it. But yeah, I it. it I don't think it'll be difficult at all, and. It just seems like the better decision based on what she said here.
1: Right. So do you think the next step is talking to her husband? Like, you know, I know adoption is not currently on the table, but she's already like anticipating that it will be. Like, what do you think her next move needs to be?
0: Yeah, I think her, de- her next move definitely needs to be talking to her husband and sort of proceeding from there. So I would try to get on the same page as her husband And it's kind of one of those things where if one of you says no, then the decision is automatically no. You know what I mean? Like, I don't think you can proceed or you should proceed with one of you being into it or one of you being all for it and the other one not. So I think it should be one of those decisions.
1: I think that's just a great rule in general when it comes to parenting children of any kind. Uh, If there's if it's not a unanimous vote, the answer is no. The no's carry the day.
0: Yes, I agree.
1: Yeah. And, and, you know, it may be that your husband would like to consider adoption, but like it may be that when you say like, hey, I feel like our relationship has suffered. I'm feeling exhausted and overwhelmed. He will say, you know, I'm glad you said something because I'm feeling that too. And as much as I I wish we could provide her with a permanent home, I'm also aware that the kind of home we would be providing her with would not be a healthy one. It would be one full of resentment and unspoken expectations and uh, a sense of being drained.
0: Yeah, and I don't want to presume to, like, know your relationship or your husband, but, like, women shoulder the majority of the childcare responsibilities anyway, so it really should, <laughs> like, if she's not for it, then I feel like, A, that's fair, and then B, like, that's it, like, that's the decision.
1: Yeah, I, I, yeah, I would say it's okay to not want to parent someone. It's okay to say... uh I am not able to, like, raise a child from 5 to 18 again after having already gone through that. Um, It's not as if you had promised to adopt her and are now going back on your word. Like, you have... You are and you have fulfilled your commitment to this child by being like a stable and loving foster parent to her. Yes. Um, and if like what needs to happen next is that she is placed in a more permanent situation that's not you, um, you have not failed. You have not like gone back on your word. Um, don't think of it in terms of I'm another loss for her. Think of it in terms of I was able to provide her with a stable, loving home for nine months, which is not the same thing as having like a stable, reliable permanent family situation like you don't have to try to paint this as rosier than it is but like Mm -hmm. you know you did something that was useful um and if you don't think you can do it again don't do it again because you're not like don't go out there cruising for brownie points by fostering kids when you kind of don't feel up for it like you know no find another way to feel good about yourself yeah i agree yeah um yeah. I just focus on the, you're worried you're going to become more depressed. Like, don't do not do that to yourself. Don't put yourself in that situation. Um, take care of yourself.
0: And also, if it makes her feel better to think about the harm that she may do to the child in the event that she keeps her or that she right. legally adopts her, I feel like it's very likely or very possible that letting her go may be the best thing for her.
1: Right. And sometimes there's situations where you just have to acknowledge this is not an ideal situation. And I can't fix it. And that's okay. And that needs to be okay. Um, Because otherwise, I would be like this depressed, resentful, sad parent who felt like they could never um, talk about how they were really feeling. And and that would not be good for her. Agree. All right. I'm going to let you read this next letter because it's just beautiful.
0: Okay. My partner's parents are getting divorced. It was a long time coming and we're a bit relieved they're finally getting on with it. But his mother keeps messaging him with all sorts of gory details about his father's various infidelities and so on, even though she's been told repeatedly, including by lawyers, to leave him and his sister out of it. She even emailed me about it. How can we establish good boundaries with her? I think she is also suffering from mental health issues.
1: It's always tough when that gets dropped in as the last sentence. Like... What makes you think she has mental health issues and and what type of mental health issues and and does she have a support system in place like that's that would really affect my answer and I feel like uh, I'm not quite sure how to address that possibility like she could just be in a really bad place and is acting out in a way that feels Um, wildly unhealthy and out of character and that's actually just has to do with the situation or it could be that she has some sort of untreated mental illness that you need to encourage her to seek help around I I think the letter writer will have to be the best judge of Mm -hmm. uh, where they think she falls in that spectrum
0: yeah I think depending on the answer to that um, about her mental health sort of affects how I feel about this because on one hand I mean, getting a divorce from like a cheating man is enough to make anyone act a little bit out of character. And so I think it's a question of, is she just acting inappropriately or do you honestly think that she has some type of underlying issue that she needs, like you said, to seek treatment for? So I think that depends on how I swing with this. Because if you feel like, I don't know, I'm on her side. So I feel like you should just listen. I'm sorry, I know that's you, like, you're, the wrong thing to
1: You're say. like You're like, yeah, yeah, send me the details I want to know. Let's, like, talk about what yeah, a like, son of a bitch he like, is.
0: Yeah, I feel like, are you saying that it's one of those, like, you don't know what else to call it, so you're saying she's acting crazy? Right. So, if that's the case, like, I mean, she's divorcing a man who cheated on her, who she has children by. Like, she's allowed to act a little bit out of character or to act out a little bit, but... I mean, I don't think it's realistic to say, like, keep us out of it. We're neutral parties because that's not ever how it works. That's
1: I mean, that's also hard, too, because I feel like if uh, and I know that like my I don't want to just give people the kind of advice I would want to get because we're all different with different goals and aims. Um, But like if my parents were getting divorced because my father cheated on my mother, I'd be like, Mom, tell me everything. Let's like you know, like, let's go after him. Like, sorry, dad, I love you. And I I know that you would not cheat on my mother. But like, if it came down to it, like you would lose my loyalty, and I would be team mom all the way. Yeah, I agree. Um, But okay, these letter writers, for whatever reason, do not want to be involved. Um, They do not want to hear about it. Um, I assume too, with gory details, it's not that she's just saying like, your father cheated on me, and I'm in a lot of pain. It's more like, and I found out, like, yeah. he did this with this person, and this act was involved, and that appendage, um, and that might be horrifying to to think about. Like, I- even if you are sympathetic to one parent over the other, and um, you know, I, I understand not wanting to hear about the specifics of your father's extracurricular sex activities, mm. um, especially if a lawyer is saying like this could negatively affect your divorce proceedings. Like, if she's messing with like her own. Financial future, perhaps, by like compromising her case by like talking out of the side of her mouth uh, in a way that is inappropriate. Um, that that's not something you want to encourage. I agree. Sometimes setting boundaries can be really complicated, and I, mm-hmm. I feel like I need to give someone really specific advice. And sometimes it's really simple. There's nothing. There's nothing complicated about this. Your job and your husband or your partner's job is to say, "Mom, I love you. I'm really sorry about what happened. Um, I can't hear specifics about." dad's infidelity. I want you to talk about this with literally anyone in the world but me. You have your choice of anyone who's not me or my dad. Um, And so if you try to send me messages about it again, I'm not going to respond. I'm going to delete them without reading them, uh, and I'm not going to engage. And then do that. Um, And if she acts out, she acts out. Um, right. you just get to hold firm. You can't you can't do anything beyond that. If she goes really, really over the top with it, you can escalate and say, Mom, I'm gonna I'm gonna have to block your number. I don't wanna do it. I love you and I like to talk to you. But if you won't respect my boundaries, then I'm gonna take the steps I have to. And that's how you do
0: it. Oh yeah. I'm all for like blocking your parents for like brief amounts of time. Like I've blocked my mom for like a couple hours before. <laughs> then like once you come back, it's so much better. But yeah, I agree with that regarding setting boundaries.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Just use you get to say no. And if she doesn't go with it, then you get to say, then you will not be able to reach me in this way. Yeah. Um, And that should come from your partner, um, like for both on both of your behalf. Um, Like you should don't respond to her email um, and and let him or her communicate to their parent. because that's, you know, that's their parents. They should be the one giving the messages um, and and set up a filter for her email. Right. Like just go to if you have Gmail, go into Gmail. It's really simple. Set up a filter, have it skip the inbox, go to a special little like wasteland um, that you just don't look at. Again, unless you are worried about her mental health and you need to keep a record, in which case, like you can maybe just keep them all in a little um, corral and then check and see if there's anything in there that worries you or that you think might pose a threat to her safety or the safety of others. But, yeah, um, do not. Do not waste time reading these messages. But also send them to me because I want to know because I'm nosy.
0: Yeah, I was like, what say did he do? <laughs> like, Tell her you're not going to read them, but actually read them.
1: Yeah, no, it is amazing how different people respond to different situations. But I would so there, there's just this huge nosy part of me that would be like, what did he do?
0: Yeah, same. I'm like the nosiest person in
1: the world. Probably the letter Roddy's response is healthier than mine, in which case, congratulations. Um, Yeah. (laughs) You have out out prudence prudence. Right. All right. Uh, I'm going to go ahead and take this next letter, which is about supporting queer friends. Supposedly. Mm -hmm. Dear Prudence. Yeah, yeah, that's the correct sound. Uh, (laughs) I've made many friends in the past year who are kind, sweet and smart, but also on the LGBT spectrum a choice I do not personally approve of due to my religious beliefs. However, I understand that this is their choice and nothing I say will change them, and frankly it's not my business, that they still deserve my respect and I will treat them like any other friend. But is it wrong to listen to them discuss their sexuality, give them advice that doesn't try to convert them, and pretend that I agree to their choice while secretly disapproving of their decisions? I do this with all my friends who make choices I disapprove of. For example, promiscuity, alcohol, drugs. But is it morally wrong or deceptive to pretend I support their choices when I don't? Just to be clear, I would never talk about anyone behind their backs. I don't believe in that sort of cruelty. This letter is amazing. I, yeah. I don't know that I've ever gotten a letter from somebody who was religiously conservative— Uh, I'm not I'm not sure what religion, but like religiously conservative in such a way that they didn't approve of somebody being queer, um, but who who wasn't just like saying once I disapprove and I'm not going to talk about it, but is like actively pretending to be affirming and is like this is kind of beautiful in a very, very weird way. Like, I guess good for you.
0: Yeah yeah this person's like pure she doesn't approve or they don't approve of like alcohol promiscuity drugs queerness
1: yeah no i i mean is it deceptive yes uh is it wrong (laughs) not necessarily right like you ask those two questions and i'm gonna have to go with like six of one half a dozen of the other that's not the correct use of that phrase but like yeah it is deceptive um it's also kind and respectful um so i guess go for it frankly yeah i I say go for it what about you what 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 are your thoughts what are your feelings how do you feel about this
0: i don't know i'm wondering how many like this person isn't even two-faced she's like three-faced like how long can you keep (laughs) up this charade of i'm not gonna say it to your face but inside i secretly hate your decisions so can you imagine like on your deathbed if your friend who'd like really
1: been there for you through a lot of like difficult breakups and relationship yeah and then they were like surprise by the way i never thought this was okay yeah, and it's kind of, really strange. I'm I'm wondering. Yeah. Here's what I'm wondering: if this person is pretty young, um, and possibly in their freshman year of college, they just said, "I've made many friends in the last year um, who are on the LGBT spectrum." Which I don't think, wh- whatever. That's a, that's an interesting phrase, but sure. Um, <laughs> and I'm kind of wondering, like, if the, is this your first year of college? Is this the first time in your life that you're like meeting gay and bi and trans people? Um, and, and it's sort of just getting to a point where you're like, I still want to hold on to these like old ideals, but I also really care about these friends and I know that it won't make them feel loved or change anything if I let them know that I disapprove. And this is maybe the first step in like slowly realizing, oh, they're actually, they're
0: actually doing okay. I decided that this person is Amish (laughs) <laughs> and they're on—is it like Rumspringa? Like the thing oh my goodness—they're allowed to like leave the Amish colony. I, I believe that that's the name. Yeah, yeah. And then that's just what I've decided. So okay. Um. Yeah. Is it wrong to listen? To, I mean, answering the question: Is it wrong? I don't think it's technically wrong, but I also think that that may make you really miserable eventually if it doesn't just change your mind if you just sit and listen to your friends talk about their queer experiences and lives, either you will become like, either you'll become softened to it and change your mind, or you'll become really bitter and like embattled. So I feel like that's the two ways it could go. I'm not sure where this might lead. I'm sure it could lead in a number
1: of different directions. I think the main point that I think is important to make here is like, Is it wrong to recognize that my religious beliefs and my religious choices do not apply to people who are not members of my religion? And the answer to that is absolutely not. Like, that's a very wonderful distinction that you seem to have been able to grasp, which is that, like, your particular commitment to your particular religion affects only you. Mm -hmm. Um, And that it would be inappropriate and unreasonable and like, frankly, undemocratic for you to try to apply the standards of your interpretation of your religion to people who have not joined your religion, who are not members. Um, So in that sense, like uh, it's not like deception isn't the word i would use i would not encourage you to think of it in terms of ah i'm deceiving them because i'm not telling them my true thoughts like unless you are pretending not to be a member of the religion you are a member of um which i doubt that you're doing like all you're doing is knowing these are the standards that i hold myself to i cannot police the world um, I'm going to give advice to other people based on their values and not mine, unless they specifically ask, like, what would you do in this situation? Or what do you believe um, is the best choice? Like, if they're just saying, what do you think I should do? And you're thinking, well, based on the fact that you are not a member of my religion and that your values are as follows, you know, you'd probably experience the most happiness doing this. Like, that's not deceptive. That's just, like, acknowledging that they're not the same as you and they don't have the same goals or aims.
0: Yeah, I agree.
1: What, this is I actually kind of I find this letter a little more charming than I thought I was going to. I kind of anticipated getting really like heated up. Um, and, and I actually think it's weirdly sweet. I mean, I, I, I hope that you eventually um, come to affirm your your queer friends queerness. But like in the interim, this is pretty nice. Yeah, it is cute.
0: Yeah, and congratulations on not talking about people behind their backs,
1: except for when you write to advice columnists. But you're keeping it vague, so I think it's totally okay.
0: Oh yeah. She doesn't or they don't talk about people behind their backs. That's really honorable. I, I know. I, I admire that tremendously. So
1: um I think they're they're doing they're doing pretty good. They're they're doing all right. Okay. Um I have saved my favorite letter for last. And I want you to read it, and I'm so excited.
0: I <laughs> I'm gonna stop prefacing this, just go for it. The subject is evil toys. This is going to sound like a silly problem, but it's really starting to wear on me. My wife has always been a do-it-yourselfer. She likes taking on projects. It's usually great. We've saved tons of money on contractors over the years. She paints, she files. There's even a little plumbing. Last fall, we had a little girl. She's happy and healthy. My wife, like many first-time parents, went a little overboard into the natural parenting. She makes all of our daughter's baby food and clothes. Everything is organic and ethically sourced. I'm not really sure what that means. This seems to be exhausting, but she never complains, and it seems important to her. The issue is the toys. My wife is convinced that every children's toy comes from China, is made in a sweatshop by child laborers, and is covered in lead paint. She will not let our daughter play with any store-bought toys. Not wanting to deprive her of toys, she has started making them. We've got a set of handmade blocks, a handful of stuffed animals, and a plush doll. It's the doll that's the issue. Our daughter loves it, but it's the creepiest thing I've ever seen. My wife, in her exhausted state, did not do the best job with its face, and it looks a little, well, homicidal. We co-sleep, and I spend many a wakeful night with that creepy thing staring at me. My daughter loves it, and my wife is beyond exhausted, so I can't even gently mention anything critical to her. What do I do?
1: First of all, you send us a picture of the doll. Yeah, that's true. How dare you write us this letter, this descriptive, unsettling letter, and not include a picture of what this face is that you're staring at every night as you try to sleep in your exhausting miserable home
0: yeah i mean to be fair all dolls are like they have the potential to look homicidal you know or like, yeah they none of them mm, they're all They've a got little pretend unnerving.
1: faces on them right like yeah. the whole like oh some dolls are creepy and some dolls aren't all dolls are creepy they
0: are all of them are creepy yeah. it, so saying that this one's like overtly creepy is it's a little bothersome
1: yeah jasmine do you
0: um do you think the doll is the issue? I do. I blame the doll.
1: You you think the doll's the only problem? If they could get rid of the doll, everything would be square?
0: No, I think he needs to sit down. Because if your wife's, like, making toys and grinding up baby food, like, just deal with it. Like, okay, you don't like this doll that she labored over and, like, drew a face on. You're. I think he's outvoted in this instance. Like, your wife likes the doll. Your daughter likes the doll. You just have to... Like, get out of your feelings, sir.
1: Yeah, I mean, like, I just want to, like, t- pull out a couple of points from the last paragraph, which is, my wife is exhausted. I can't sleep at night. Uh, I can't say anything critical to my wife. That's Ooh. your problem. Right. It's not the damn doll. The problem is that your wife has, like, signed up to become super parent And is pouring all of her energy into it to the point where you feel like you cannot say you can't speak to her because Mm -hmm. she will, I don't know, fall apart or withdraw or, you know, climb up on the cross. Um, That's the problem. And and I always find these questions really tough. Like, it's one thing when one parent is, like, slacking off and the other parent writes in and they're just like, my partner doesn't help out around the house and I'm exhausted. And I'm like, oh, great. Like, I can offer you tools because you can, like, make demands and stop doing stuff. But it's always hard when somebody writes in and says, my other partner seems miserable, but they insist that they're happy, like, taking on 50 jobs at once and they won't let go of any of it. And I'm always like, oh, that's so much harder To convince someone else that they're exhausted and miserable and doing too much when they're like, nope, totally worth it. I never want my daughter to touch a broccoli that has not first been hand blended by me.
0: Right. Yeah, it's admirable. But I really want to see the doll. And then part of me does think that if this were a horror movie, he would be the parent that knew. You know what I mean? Like he knew that the doll was off. Did you ever see Annabelle? Because there was literally a movie about.
1: Yes, I saw it too, yeah. and it was so great. There were so many moments where I was screaming at the screen, like,
0: "Why did you leave the doll in that room?" Yeah, so I feel like I want to give him horror movie advice, kind of like once one person starts to detect something, you need to get rid of the doll. But oh my God, <sighs> start like moving it
1: and putting it in weird places in the house so that you can convince your wife that it's also haunted.
0: Yeah, or it may no, be. be we don't know that it isn't. I,
1: I definitely want to encourage this letter to writer to watch the movie Annabelle with his wife.
0: Yeah. And then also like all of the progenitors of Annabelle, like Chucky, Child's Play. Oh
1: my God. I forgot about Dolly. Dolly
0: did you ever see Dolly yes. Dearest?
1: No, I saw Mannequin, but I've never seen Dolly Dearest. Tell oh my God. Me everything about Dolly it. Dolly
0: Dearest was like the female doll <gasps> corollary to Chucky. Oh my God. Yeah. You, you have to watch retorn. the trailer. It is. And she has, like, this weird, creepy dress. But there's, like, a legion of them. Oh, my God. Yeah. Dolly Dearest, Child's Play, um, for good measure, Paranormal Activity.
1: Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. Um, Also, there was another one with dolls, wasn't it? Um, Insidious? Yeah. I I mean we've got some great movie
1: recommendations for you. I would also add to that list the brave little toaster. It's not quite toys but they're all like sentient inanimate objects in a way that I found really upsetting as a child and there's a couple of scenes that are really terrifying. Really? Uh, yeah. Oh god, it's like this kid has this cabin, this summer cabin he visits all the time and he has a couple of like possessions that are obsessed with him and it's a toaster, a lamp, a clock radio, a blanket. And a vacuum cleaner. And, like, the kid's family eventually sells the cabin and they move to the city. And the, like, the objects are so obsessed with being returned to their master uh, that they decide to, like, journey to the city. And, like, the first thing that happens is this, like, very upsetting air conditioner dies in front of them. Like, just, like, in this very, again, like, it has, like, a heart attack and dies. And they're all just distressed. And then they have to go find him. And, like, in the end, he's, like, happily reunited with his like private property it's a it's a, it's a lot of weird messages for children um, namely that like property can love you um, and that everything is dying around you and trying to
0: murder you and
1: uh, it's a lot but I think you should watch it
0: yeah I, can I say that as a child I thought all of my toys were I didn't necessarily think they were trying to harm me but I definitely thought they were alive. like I definitely thought that they had a life that they like resumed as soon as I turned my back. So I was constantly in this process of like trying to catch them. Yes. Yeah. So I would No, like- I
1: think that's universal. I think that's why the toy story movies are so popular. And I, I think there was also, at least on my end also like, not, not quite a fear of them, but, like, a healthy fear in the sense that, like, they need to be placated. Yeah. Like, if I... I, I had, like, a rotating system whereby certain stuffed animals would get rotated out onto my bed to sleep with at night me and the rest too. would go in the closet. And oh I felt God, like too. if one of them spent too many nights in the closet, it would get upset.
0: Yeah. Same. I definitely harbor that for all my stuffed animals. Like, it would be like, okay, like, this night the Dalmatian's going to sleep next to me and then like let the brown bear sleep in the closet or on the I floor.
1: I have never felt like more known and affirmed and seen than I do in this moment.
0: Oh, Mallory. <laughs> Thank you. Yes. Um, I did that with my stuffed animals.
1: We are getting so far afield.
0: Oh, okay. So that's my advice is like, if he's a conspiracy theorist, as I am, then this is like the beginning of a horror movie. And they should take his advice and get rid of the doll while they still can. But if he's like a normal, logical person, then I say just get over it and like, let his daughter have the doll.
1: Yeah, I mean, here's, here's how I'm like reading this in between the lines, which is my wife seems to be sleeping through the night, my daughter seems to be sleeping through the night. I'm staying up, staring at this doll that they (laughs) both like. And there's this sense of, like, my wife is exhausted but not willing to give any of this up. My daughter's enjoying herself. They have this connection. My wife's, like, knocking herself out to make my daughter happy. And I feel isolated, left out of the decision-making process. And, like, I'm the only person who's not enjoying this situation. Mm -hmm. And that's a pretty big deal. And I want to, like, point out that, like, A of all, having a newborn is always rough even on, like, a great relationship. So, you know, be a little gentle on both of you, like, especially with your first kid. Of course there's going to be, like, a desire to be super mom. Um, And and think through, like, what's really bothering you, right? Like, if it's the co-sleeping, Mm-hmm. and your wife is, like, co-sleeping forever, I want her to sleep with us until she goes to college, and you're like, <laughs> I'm over it, I want her to sleep in her own room, like, then you need to, like, tell her. And and not not in the sense of, like, babe, I need to set a limit. It's time to draw the line, because this is, I think, the first conversation you're having about it. Um, but to to say, like, this is not working for me. I'm unhappy. And I, I also want to, like, affirm our commitment to each other. And I also, like, you got to ask yourself, you know, is your... Is your wife taking on all these projects because you're kind of, like, checked out around the house? Like, and maybe she's crowding you out. I I, I don't pretend to know your situation, but ask, like, am I doing nearly as much for our daughter as she is? And mm-hmm. is part of her driving herself to exhaustion because she feels like if she doesn't do it, I won't care enough about our daughter to, like, do that. So, like, there might be ways in which she needs to, like, bring it down a little. Like, it's probably okay mm-hmm. to, uh, yeah, like, touch a toy that came from a store. Yeah. Um, and it's also uh, okay for her to say, like, I really feel strongly about our daughter eating organic food. And you can just be like, fine. Like, great. Yeah. Let's do it. That's true. Uh, but yeah, yeah, figure out what's not working and then talk to your wife. And you say, like, you can't even gently mention anything critical to her. That sucks. Um, But I can tell you the worst response you could have to that is never say anything critical to her Mm -hmm. and then stay up sleepless night after sleepless night and get resentful um, because that's when shit really hits the fan. And so, like, have this conversation out of the house. Have it when you're not, like sleep deprived maybe get somebody to look after your baby for a couple of hours and just say like th- like these things are hard for me and i've been scared to talk to you about it because i feel like i'm afraid of your reaction mm-hmm. and like if she has a tough time like let her have an emotional response let her tell her how you feel and like just say like i want to mm-hmm. be a team my goal is for the two of us to feel united, not divided by our kid. Um, and obviously, that's going to be hard because children are just like designed to tear couples apart. They it sounds are. like. Um, and but yeah, like you have to because if you don't say something gently critical to her now, you will pull away. And in the future, you will feel like you don't know your own wife or you will say something incredibly, incredibly like hurtful because you've driven yourself to a point where you're like, I can't do this another second. And I don't want that for you.
0: Okay. Yeah, that's so much better advice than mine, which is like... Uh,
1: I don't know. I mean, I like the idea of pretending that it's haunted.
0: Yeah. And we don't know that it isn't, again, Mallory.
1: No. Again, I I actually want to say, like, all of these letter writers may be haunted. (laughs)
0: Like, a
1: ghost could absolutely be behind all of these situations. Also, uh, if you are tempted to secretly throw away the doll and pretend it got lost, please don't do that. That's not going to end well. You don't think so? No, I feel like... Every advice columnist has to figure out, are you the kind of advice columnist who occasionally advocates little white lies or, like, for the greater good, getting rid of something? Or are you the kind that's like, no, hard line, total disclosure, total honesty? And I didn't think I realized this about myself, but I I think I fall a little closer to the total disclosure, everyone has a right to know side of things. Which is too bad. I wish I was more chill. I wish I was a little more like, look, life's all about compromise. It's a slow slide to the grave. and Honesty is impossible. Just... Do what you got to do to make it through the day.
0: Oh, that's me. (laughs) (laughs) So, I mean, but that's why I'm so glad you're on
1: the show, because you're out here (laughs) delivering thumbs down to strangers. You're totally happy to, like, make a sacrifice on someone else's behalf without telling them. Like, you're, you're living life on life's terms. For sure. Do you have any last generalized pieces of advice for any of our listeners out there?
0: Um... That if you are made uncomfortable by a doll, it's definitely haunted. And (laughs) That's
1: the only criteria.
0: Yeah. And if your parents are getting a divorce, you definitely have to pick a side.
1: Yeah. Send us your parents' texts. Send us pictures of your kids' dolls. Yes. Um, If there's information that you don't want to have, we want to have it. Yes. All right. Jasmine, thank you so much. (laughs) Thank you. If you or someone you love believes that there is a doll in your home that may be haunted, possessed, or otherwise infernally implicated, please send a picture and a brief description to prudencepodcast at gmail.com. That's prudencepodcast at gmail.com. Frankly, I just want more ghost questions now. I just realized I get no supernaturally themed questions on the show occasionally I'll get one from someone who wants to know how to talk about prayer that's as close as we've ever gotten to I'm worried about a ghost or you know someone from beyond the grave is trying to contact me and I am down to adjudicate those questions you guys so you know if you've got some sort of question that you cannot explain um some shit's going down on the astral plane please uh, give me a call. I have seen exactly one and one-half episodes of The X-Files, so I feel eminently qualified to deal with all these issues, uh, and I want to hear from you. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dilling. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Steve Liktai is the executive producer of Slate Podcasts, and Andy Bowers is the chief content officer of Panoply. If you like this show, please go to iTunes and write us a review. It helps more people find the show and more problems find solutions. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401-371-DEER. That's 3327. And you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location. And at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds. A minute tops.